Chapter Eight of My Path to Atheism by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight On the Religious Education of Children. In every transition stage of the world's history, the question of education naturally comes to the front. So much depends on the first impressions of childhood, on the first training of the tender shoot, that it has always been acknowledged from Solomon to Forster, that to train up a child in the way he should go is among the most important duties of fathers and citizens. To the individual, to the family, to the state, the education of the rising generation is a question of primary importance. Plato began the education of the citizens of his ideal republic from the very hour of their birth. The nursing child was taken from the mother, lest injudicious treatment should mar, in the slightest degree, the perfection of the future warrior. On this point, modern and ancient wisdom clasp hands, and place the education of the child among the most important duties of the state. The battle at present raging between the advocates of secular and religious education, to use the cant of the day, is a most natural and righteous recognition of the vast interests at stake when church or state claims the right of training the sons and daughters of England. No one has yet attempted to explain why it should be irreligious to teach writing or history or geography, or why it should destroy a child's soul to improve his mental faculties. It is among the mysteries of the faith why it is better for our poor to leave them to grow up in both moral and intellectual darkness than to dissipate the intellectual darkness by some few rays of knowledge and to leave the moral training to other hands. If we left a starving man to die because we could only give him bread, and were unable to afford cheese in addition, all would unite in declaiming at our folly. But religious people would rather that our street Arabs grew up both heathens and brutes, than that we should improve their minds without Christianizing their souls. Better let a lad grow up a thief and a drunkard, than turn him into an artisan and a free-thinker. There can scarcely be a better proof of the unreasonableness of Christian doctrine than the Christian fear of sharpening mental faculties without binding them down at the same time in the chains of dogma. Only a religion founded on reason can dare to train children's minds to the utmost, and then leave them free to use all the power and keenness acquired by that training on the investigation of any religious doctrine presented to them. We, who have written Tickle on the Christian faith, share in the opinion of the Christian clergy that man's carnal reason is a terrible foe to the Christian revelation, but here we begin to differ from them. For while they regard this reason as a child of the devil, to be scourged and chained down, we do homage to it as to the fairest offspring of the divine spirit, the brightest earthly reflection of his glory, and the nearest image of his person, we would cherish it, tend it, nourish it, as our Father's noblest gift to humanity as our surest guide and best counsellor, as the ear which hears his voice, and the eye which sees him, as the sharpest weapon against superstition, the ultimate arbiter on earth, between right and wrong. To us, then, education is ranged on the side of God. We welcome it freely and gladly, because all truth, all light, all knowledge, are foes of falsehood, of darkness, of ignorance. If we mistake error for truth, a brighter light will set us right, and we only wish to be taught truth, not to be proved right. Most liberal thinkers agree 
in recognising the fact that the duties of the state in the matter of education must, in the nature of things, be purely secular. That is to say, while the state insists that the future citizen shall be taught at least the elements of learning, so as to fit him or her for fulfilling the duties of that citizenship, it has no right to insist on impressing on the mind of its pupil any set of religious dogmas or any form of religious creed. The abdication by the state of the pretended right of enforcing on its citizens any special form of religion is not at all identical with the opposition by the state to religious teaching. It is merely a development of the very wise maxim of the great Jewish teacher to render the things of Caesar to Caesar and the things of God to God. To teach reading, writing, honesty, regard for law, these things are Caesar's duties. To teach religious dogma, creed or article is entirely the province of the teachers who claim to hold the truth of God. But my object now is not to draw the line between the duties of church and state, of school and home, nor do I wish to enter the lists of sectarian controversy, to break a lance in favour of a new religious dogma. The question is rather this. What are the limits of the religious education which it is wise to impose on the young? Is any dogmatic teaching to be part of their moral training? And is the dogmatism against which we have rebelled to be revived in a new form? Are the fetters which we are breaking for ourselves to be welded together again for the young limbs of our children? Are they to be fed on the husks which have starved our own religious aspirations, and which we have analysed and rejected as unfit to sustain our moral and mental vigour? On the other hand, are our children to grow up without any religious teaching at all, without a ray of that sunshine which is to most of us the very source of our gladness and the renewal of our strength? I think the best way of deciding this question is to notice the gradual development of the childish body and mind. Nature's indication are a sure guidepost, and we cannot go very far wrong in following her hints. I am now on ground with which mothers are familiar, though perhaps few men have watched young children with sufficient attention to be able to note their gradual development. The first instincts of a baby are purely personal. The not I is for it non-existent. Food, warmth, cleanliness comprise all its needs and all our duties to it. The next stage is when the infant becomes conscious of the existence of something outside itself. When, vaguely and indistinctly, but yet decidedly, it shows signs of observing the things round it, to cultivate observation, to attract attention, slowly to guide it into distinguishing one object from another are the next steps in its education. The child soon succeeds in distinguishing forms, and learns to attach different sounds to different shapes. It is also taught to avoid some things, and to play with others. It awakes to the knowledge that while some objects give pleasure, others give pain. So far as material things go, it learns to choose the good and to avoid the evil. This power is only gained by experience, and is therefore acquired but gradually, and after a time, side by side with it, runs another lesson. Slowly and gradually there appears a dawning appreciation of right and wrong, this appreciation is not, however, at first an appreciation of any intrinsic rightness or wrongness in any given action. It is simply a recognition on the child's part that some of its acts meet with approval, others disapproval from its elders. The standard of its seniors is unquestioningly accepted by the child. The moral sense awakes, but is completely guided in its first efforts by the hand of the child's teacher, 
as completely as the first efforts to walk are directed by the mother. Thus it comes to pass that the conscience of the child is but the reflex of the conscience of its parents or guardians. Right and wrong, in a child's vocabulary, are in the earliest stages equivalent to reward and punishment. Its final court of appeal, in cases of morality, is the judgment of the parent. Quote, the moral sense does show itself, however, in very young children, in a higher form than this, for we may often observe in a young child an instinctive sense of shame at having done wrong, but the moral sense is awakened and educated by the parents' approval and disapproval. This may be proved, I think, by the fact that a child brought up among thieves and evil livers will accept their morality as a matter of course, and will steal and lie habitually, without attaching to either act any idea of wrong. The moral sense is inherent in man, and is in no way given by the parent, but I think that it is first aroused and put into action by the parent. The parent accustoms the child to regard certain actions as right and wrong. This appeals to the moral sense in the child, and the child very rapidly is ashamed of wrong as wrong, and not simply from dread of punishment. I would be understood to mean, in the text, that the wish for reward is the first response of the child to the idea of an inherent distinction between different actions. This feeling rapidly develops into the true moral sense, which regards right as right and wrong as wrong. I append this note at the suggestion of a valued friend, who feared that the inference might be drawn from the text that the moral sense was implanted by the parent, instead of being, as it is, the gift of God. End quote. It is perhaps scarcely accurate to call this motive power in the child a moral sense at all. Still, this recognition of something which is immaterial and intangible, and which is yet to be the guide of its actions, is a great step forward from the simple consciousness of outer and material objects, and is truly the dawn of that moral sense which becomes in men and women the test of right and wrong. So far we have considered the growing faculties of the child as regards physical and moral development and I particularly wish to remark that the moral sense appears long before any religious tendency can be noted. There is, however, another side of the complete human character which is very important, but which is slow in showing itself in any healthy child. I mean what may be called the spiritual sense, in distinction from the moral. The sense which is the crowning grace of humanity, the sense which belongs wholly to the immortal part of man, the outstretched hands of the human spirit groping after the eternal spirit, the yearning after that all-pervading power which men call God. I know well that, in many precociously pious children, this spiritual sense is forced into a premature and unwholesome maturity by means of a spiritual hothouse, the summer fruit of piety may be obtained in the springtime of the childish heart. The imitative instinct of childhood quickly reproduces the sentiments around it, and set phrases which meet with admiration flow glibly from baby lips. But this strongly developed religious feeling in a child is both unnatural and harmful, and can never, because it is unreal, produce any lasting good effect. Yet it is none the less true that at an early age, differing much in different children, the spiritual sense does show signs of awakening, that children soon begin to wonder about things around them, and to ask questions which can only find their true answer in the name of God. How to meet these questions, how to train this growing sentiment without crushing it on the one hand, and without unduly stimulating it on the other, is a source of deep anxiety to many a mother's heart in the present day. 
they are unable to tell their children the stories which satisfied their own childish cravings. No longer can they hold up before the eager faces the picture of the manger at Bethlehem, or dim the bright eyes with the story of the cross on Calvary. No longer can they fold the little hands in prayer to the child of Nazareth, or hush the hasty tongue with the reminder of the obedience of the virgin's son. To a certain extent this is a loss. A child quickly seizes the concrete. The idea of the child Jesus, or the man Jesus, is readily grasped by a child's intellect. The God of the Old Testament, the magnified man, is also, though more dimly, understood. These conceptions of the childhood of humanity suit the childhood of the individual, and it is far more difficult for the child to realise the idea of God when he is divested of these materialistic garments. Yet I speak from experience when I say that it is by no means impossible to train a child into the simplest and happiest feelings as regards the Supreme Being, without degrading the divine into the human. By one name we can speak of God by which he will be readily welcomed to the child's heart, and that is the name of the Father. Most children are keenly alive to natural beauties, and are quick to observe birds and flowers and sunshine. At times they will ask how these things come here, and then it is well to tell them that they are the works of God. Thus the child's first notions of the existence of a power he cannot see or feel will come to him clothed in things he loves, and will be free from any suggestion of fear. Even those who regard God from the standpoint of pantheism may use natural objects so as to train the child into a fearless and happy recognition of the constant working of the spirit of nature, and so guard the young mind against that shrinking from and terror of God which popular Christianity is so apt to induce. The lad or girl who grows up with even the habit of regarding God as the calm and mighty motive power of the forces of nature, changeless, infinite, absolutely trustworthy, will be slow to accept in later life the crude conceptions which incarnate the creative power in a virgin's womb and ascribe caprice, injustice and cruelty to the mighty spirit of the universe. Quote, the ordinary shrinking of a child from the idea of a presence which he cannot see, but which sees him, will not be felt by children whose only ideas about God are that he is the father from whose hand come all beautiful things. In any home where the parents' thoughts of God are free from doubt and mistrust, the children's thoughts will be the same. Religion in their eyes will be synonymous with happiness, for God and good will be convertible terms. End quote. There is a deep truth in the idea of pantheism, that nature is an apparition of the deity, God in a mask, that he is the light of the morning, the beauty of the noon, and the strength of the sun, he is the one, the all, the soul of all, more moving than motion, more stable than rest, fairer than beauty, and stronger than strength. The power of nature is God, he is the all, the reality of all phenomena. The child fed on this food will have scarcely anything to unlearn, even when he begins to believe that God is something more than nature. The created all is the symbol of God, and he will pass easily and naturally on from seeing God in nature to see him in a higher form. Of course, as a theist, I should myself go much further than this. I should speak of all natural glory as but the reflection of the deity, or as the robe in which he veils his infinite beauty. I should bid my children rejoice in all happiness, as in the gift of a father who delights in sharing his joy with his creatures. I should point out that the pain caused by ignorance of, or by breaking, natural laws, 
is God's way of teaching men obedience for their own ultimate good. In the freedom and fullness of nature's gifts, I should teach them to see the equal love of God for all, through marking that in nature's visible kingdom no end can be gained without labour and without using certain laws. They should learn that in the invisible kingdom they need not expect to find favouritism, nor think to share the fruits of victory without patient toil. To all who believe in a God who is also the father of spirits, such teaching as this comes easily. As they themselves learn of God only through his works, so they naturally teach their children to seek him in the same way. The question so familiar to every mother, Can God see me? Where is God? can only be met with the simple assertion that God sees all and is everywhere. For there are many childish questions which it is wisest to meet with statements which are above the grasp of the childish mind. These statements may be simply given to the child as statements which it is too young either to question or to understand. Nothing is gained by trying to smooth down spiritual subjects to the level of a child's capacity. The time will come later when the child must meet and answer for itself all great spiritual questions. The parent's care should be to remove all hindrances from the child's path of inquiry, but not to give it cut-and-dried answers to every possible question. Religion, to be worth anything, must be a personal matter, and each must find it out for himself. The wise parent will endeavour to save the child from the pain of unlearning, by giving but little formal religious teaching. He cannot fight the battle for his child, but he can prevent his child being crippled by a fancied armour which will stifle rather than protect him. He can give a few wide principles to direct him without weighing him down with guide-books. But even the most general ideas of God should not be forced on a childish mind. They should come, so to speak, by chance. They should be presented in answer to some demand of the child's heart. They should be inculcated by stray words and passing remarks. They should form the atmosphere surrounding the child habitually, and not be a sudden wind of doctrine. Of course, all this is far more troublesome than to teach a child a catechism or a creed, but it is a far higher training. Dogma, i.e. conviction, petrified by authority, should be utterly excluded from the religious education of children. A few great axiomatic truths may be laid down, but even in these primary truths dogmatism should be avoided. The parent should always take care to make it apparent that he is stating his own convictions, but is not enforcing them on the child by his authority. So far as the child is capable of appreciating them, the reasons for the religious conviction should be presented along with the conviction itself. Thus the child will see, as he grows older, that religion cannot be learned by rote, that it is not shut up in a book, or contained in creeds. He will appreciate the all-important fact that free inquiry is the only air in which truth can breathe, that one man's faith cannot justly be imposed on another and that every individual soul has the privilege and the responsibility of forming his own religion, and must either hear God with his own ears, or else not hear him at all. We have noticed that the moral sense awakes before the religious, I must state my repugnance to these terms, though I use them for the sake of clearness, but morality is religion, although religion is more than morality, and the so-called religion, which is not morality, is worthless and hateful. There remains then to consider what we will call the second side of religion, although it is by far its most important side. True religion consists not only in feelings towards God, but also in duties towards men. The first, noble and blessed as they are, should in every healthy religion give place to the second. For a morally good man who does not believe in God at all, 
is in a far higher state of being than the man who believes in God and is selfish, cruel, or unjust. Error in faith is forgivable, error in life is fatal. The good man shall surely see God, although for a time his eyes be holden, the evil man, though he hold the noblest faith yet known, shall never taste the joy of God until he turns from sin and struggles after holiness. Faith first, and then morality, is the war-cry of the churches. Morality above all, and let faith follow in good time, is the watchword of theism. So among us the principal part of the religious training of our children should be morality. Religious feeling may be overstrained, or give rise to self-deception. Religious talk may be morbid and unreal. Religious faith may be erring, and must be imperfect but morality is a rock which can never be shaken, a guide which can never mislead. Whether we are right or wrong in our belief about God, whether we are immortal spirits or perishable organisations, yet purity is nobler than vice, courage than cowardice, truth than falsehood, love than hate. Let us then teach our children morality above all things. Let us teach them to love good for its own sake without thought of reward, and they will remain good, even if, in after life, they should, alas, lose all hope of immortality and all faith in God. A child's natural instinct is towards good. A tale of heroism, of self-sacrifice, of generosity, will bring the eager blood flushing up to a child's face, and wake a quick response and a desire of emulation. It is therefore well to place in children's hands tales of noble deeds in days gone by, Nothing is easier than to train a child into feeling a desire to be good for the sake of being so. There is something so attractive in goodness that I have found it more effectual to hold up the nobility of courage and unselfishness before the child's eyes than to descend to punishment for the corresponding faults. If a child is in the habit of regarding all wrong as something low and degrading, he quickly shrinks from it. For mothers know the instinctive ambition of children to be something superior and admirable, and this instinct is most useful in inculcating virtue. Later in life nothing ruins a young man like discovering that morality and religion are often divorced, and that the foremost professors of religion are less delicately honourable and trustworthy than high-minded worldly men. On the other hand, nothing will have so beneficial an effect on men and women entering life as to see that those who are most joyful in their faith towards God lead the purest and most blameless lives do good, be good, is, as has well been said, the golden rule of life. Do good, be good, must be the law impressed on our children's hearts. Whatever eclipse of faith may await England, whatever darkness of most hopeless scepticism, whatever depth of uttermost despair of God, there is not only the hope, but the certainty of the resurrection of religion, if we all hold fast through the driving storm to the sheet-anchor of pure morality too most faithful this charge of all duty towards man to love and tenderness and charity and patience. Morality never faileth, but whether there be dogmas, they shall fail. Whether there be creeds, they shall cease. Whether there be churches, they shall crumble away. But morality shall abide for evermore, and endure as long as the endless circle of nature revolves around the eternal throne. End of chapter 8